0: Let's pray again, shall we, as we get to uh, hearing our teaching this morning. God, we pray, um, as, we, as we want to do, and as we need to do, thanking you that you're a God who speaks to us. God, we pray that as we have now heard your word, that you would take that word and every word of that word and that you would use it in our lives that you would help us to grow that you would help us to live in a way that honors you and honors the Christ who loved us and saved us and so God we ask now as we reflect on what your word has said and unpack what your word has said that you would take what we learn and may it not just go into our ears and then get lost but that we would take it we would look as we saw last week we would look at your word and not forget what we look like that we would look at your word and that it would Penetrate deep into our souls and help us to live in a way that honors you. So give us the strength to to do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Um, I had a, a little bit of, of a cold this week and uh, kind of hit me in full force. Um, and so hopefully I will... Uh, um, my voice will hold out. If not, um, the sermon will end whenever it, whenever my voice does. So uh, we'll see how this goes. I'm going to fly, advise my, my throat um, consultant Rosie. tells me to drink lots of water. So, so we're in, in James. As you know, in the setting of James is one of uh, the twelve James is writing to this group of Christians who are scattered all throughout Um, the uh, Judea and Samaria and Palestine, the the uh, the Assyria, perhaps they were scattered because of the persecution that has happened to them. And they because of their commitment to Christ, they're likely outcasts scattered all throughout, scattered from Jerusalem, scattered perhaps from friends and family and loved ones. They're basically refugees. They're displaced from Jerusalem to Syria. In Samaria and beyond and hence the trials that James has spoke about in chapter one and not only that they likely experienced a great deal of financial strain and so uh, in this passage where we get to in chapter two um, James is dealing with some some financial issues or issues related to finances and perhaps Um, The effect that money or finances had on their church community and how they treated other people. And so the problem that James is addressing here in this chapter, the beginning of chapter two, is put quite concisely and very accurately, in my opinion, in the heading as it reads in my ESV Bible for these verses. And that is partiality, or rather the sin, the sin of partiality. That is J- what James chapter two verses one through 13, one through 13 is dealing with the sin of partiality. Notice what he says in verse one, my brothers show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice what it says in verse four. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges of, with evil thoughts. This is partiality. This is the sin of partiality. And it's, a, it's a, a pretty egregious sin. No matter where partiality may be found. But it is especially egregious for Christians. As we will see. Notice how James puts it in verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's particularly egregious sin for Christians. So what is partiality? Or what is this sin of partiality? James illustrates for us. I mean, you could have multiple illustrations for what it might look like. But James gives an illustration for us in verses 2 through 3. And it may seem like this might be a hypothetical. Like, he's just kind of describing, you know, a hypothetical situation. I have some uh, hunch to think that maybe he's he's actually caught wind of something that actually did happen. Because of what he says in verse 4. But he gives an illustration for us here. It could be a hypothetical one. But it could actually be an actual experience that happened. Notice the scenario in verses 2 and 3. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing... Comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby co- clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Notice the difference between sitting and standing. Or sit down at my feet. I think it's more literally sit, sit down over by the footstool. That's the scenario. Two people walk in. One is rich Gold ring, fine clothing. The other one is poor, shabby clothing. And you separate them out based on that. You say to one, oh, you come sit in a good place. To the other, you sit there. First things, a couple of things to note here. First, the the setting of this scenario, it says in your assembly. So if, you know, a man comes into your assembly, the Greek word here is is Um, is the word we get for synagogue, right? would be the gathering place. And this would be an early word for the the description of the church, a local church as it would be getting together. So like what we have right here, this would be uh, in the early first century of the church. This would be kind of synagogue, right? The Christian communities were modeled after the Jewish synagogue where they would get together, they would read the word. And so it's the local place of instruction. It's the local place of worship. It was a gathering of, uh, in a Christian context, it was a gathering of Christians for worship, for prayer, for singing the Lord's Supper, reading the scripture, getting an instruction from one of the shepherds or teachers. So this is the church. And you have the two visitors, the rich person dressed luxuriously, poor person dressed shabbily. And you have two responses, the preferential treatment to the one and non-preferential treatment to the other. That is what partiality is. Why is partiality a sin? Well, he tells us in verse four, when you do this, when you make these distinctions among yourselves, among believers, those who come into your assembly, you have become judges with evil thoughts. So you have this twin sins of segregation and prejudice. And all of this is based on worldly categories. Right? So kind of keep that in mind on on what's being being done here. You're talking about Christians who are gathering together as in a synagogue, which is basically a little outpost of heaven. Where their true dwelling place is. And while you're Christians in gathering together in these outposts of heaven, you start operating according to worldly categorizations. You're a heavenly people who are, you know, in the world but not of the world, as Jesus, James's big brother, said. And yet. Here, the sin of partiality is operating according to the worldly breakdowns of categorization. That's what kind of makes this, makes this a sin. The sin of partiality is sorting people out based on worldly categories. And in this case, it would be wealth. Privileging one person over another based on what? Worldly appearances. How they appear when they walk through the door. Judging a book by its cover, so to speak. James says Christians should not behave like this. And he even says this specifically and clearly and explicitly in verse 9. Notice what it says in verse 9. But if you show partiality, it's repeating the word that we find in verse 1. If you show partiality, you are committing a sin, he says. So if you show partiality, you're committing the sin. And notice what it says, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What does that mean? The law. How is partiality transgressing the Old Testament law? If you were here during Institute, we talked a little bit about the moral law and the three uses of the law and still being relevant here. And it just so works really well that it dovetails with what. James is addressing here in this passage. He says, "Actually, if you're doing that as Christians, uh, you're uh, not only are you operating on a worldly plane when you're a heavenly group of people. You're also breaking the Old Testament moral law. How? How so? Notice what it says. Back up one verse. In verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, James says, and then he quotes." This verse from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing pretty well. Now, we should be very familiar with this verse, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked on a couple of occasions, which of the commandments is the greatest? And he cites Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he goes, and the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes from Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 18. James quotes that here in verse 8. He says, yeah, if you do this, you're doing the law pretty well. Echoing what his big brother just had said, that this is the second commandment. It's just like loving the Lord your God with all of your hearts. Um, But if you look, it's really interesting that if you, well, so what's he doing here? Between verse 8 and verse 9. And he's saying, if you're showing partiality, how are you doing that? How is the connection? What's the connection there? Um, It's interesting. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 19 and you look at the context, just a couple of verses earlier in Leviticus, it says, it says this in verse 15. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness or justice, you shall judge your neighbor. I think that's what James is pointing out here. He's like, wait a second. Jesus had said that the the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, and the second being like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James, being familiar with Leviticus and its context, would know And I hear that you're doing partiality. You're being partial. You're deferring to the great. So you are, in this sense, being a a law breaker. You're violating verse 15. And then notice what else he does here, too, is that he says, and by the way, if you violate verse 15... Even if you claim that you are loving your neighbor as yourself in verse 18, if you do 18 but don't do 15, it's as if you broke the whole thing. That's what he's saying in verse 10. Right? In verse 9, he says, when you show partiality, you're committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it or guilty of all of it. I had never noticed this before. I thought James was just kind of pulling this idea out of uh, the idea that the whole law is one whole law, and he's right. But the idea of what he quotes in verse 8 makes sense here. Because you guys, if you defer to the great, you're violating verse 15. And if you violate verse 15, you're violating 18 and 16 and 17 and everywhere else in the law. So that's why James is able to say you're committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay? Notice that the law was about equity. You don't defer to the great and nor are you partial to the poor. There's some have taken James's words here and have made it uh, kind of the the key texts and verses. James would be, he was one of the first uh, social justice activists right if you, li- if you read closely to what James is saying he's not, he's not saying hold on a second here get, like, you're not preferring the poor he's saying no you shall neither be partial you should not defer to the great nor shall you be partial to the poor so we are to treat is what he's saying here is you're going to treat all people at the same level and the same standard That is justice. That is righteousness. And that's why the sin of partiality is so so bad. I normally uh, don't do this. I normally don't share like personal stories. But um, I wanted to share like one personal story as kind of an illustration of probably what in my experience would have been the greatest example of partiality that I had ever witnessed. And if, so if you bear with me for the next couple minutes, let me just kind of share this, this story. Um, I've shared this in personal context. I don't know that I've ever shared this in like a, in a teaching or preaching uh, setting, but some, some time ago, many years ago, I worked at a bank and and it was uh, quite the learning experience. Um, but one of the biggest, I mean, I have a lot of stories. Janet can tell you, um, but one of the biggest lessons I learned was the difference in how cust- different customers were treated. Um, I've, I've had a lot of different jobs. <laughs> I think the count is 38, counting like all the way from, you know, childhood all the way up, thirty 38-something different, different jobs. And everywhere I've worked, I've usually seen, usually, always there's a fair treatment with customers, fair and consistent treatment with customers across the board. But I vividly remember that not being the case when I worked at the bank. That was not the case. There was a clear and unspoken policy of of favoritism. And some of the customers were clearly privileged above others. I regularly encountered customers who were struggling financially. They were living paycheck to paycheck. And you know this as a bank employee because you could see their banking transition. You could see everything. You could tell what they buy, when they buy, what their accounts balance is on any given day. And often... For some of those people, those account balances would be hanging precariously close to zero, and it would be, happen right around the time their paychecks arrive, and they would be rushing to the bank after work and to try to get that check deposited. And sadly, in many uh, instances, you would have times when it would fall into a, a negative balance, and I would have to be there to kind of watch when this happened. Um, this would mean that each transaction, while in a negative balance— uh, would be assessed a twenty-five dollar fee at the time. How many of you have ever experienced this in in your life? The bank, yes, okay. Um, and by the way, if you've experienced this, what happens in your heart when that happens? Like bitterness. the bitterness, anger, frustration. So for example, a customer would have three transactions. All of them would be in a negative balance. They would then be penalized $75. So it would increase the negative balance by $75. And it was an understandable policy, but it was difficult to deal with customers who had to experience that. But on one occasion, I had a customer come in. She was very angry, and she was very frustrated, and made that known to me. she looked at her daughter's checking account statement, and the account had gone to a negative balance of well over $1,000. There were dozens of transactions while in the negative balance. So they were like – and the number sticks into my head – $675 of overdraft fees. Yeah. So the balance was nearly at $1,700, the negative balance, all in the red. And she wanted to know, so rightfully kind of concerned, she wanted to know what happened. So I meticulously went through all of the charges. In the span of two days, there were uh, the following, like $135 at Victoria's Secret, $78 at Chili's Bar and Grill. $48 Forty-eight dollars at Celebration Cinemas, one hundred sixty-eight dollars at Gap, etc., etc., etc. And I could see when and where these charges were happening, and where they were all run, and all at different, you know, wherever they happened. And so I printed all of these transactions out. I walked with this lady through what was happening to her daughter's um, uh, checking account, and after some time, it became apparent what had happened. This woman's daughter was a freshman in college, and her parents were sending her. Her parents were sending her $2,000 a month, not for rent, not for dorm fees, not for books, not for lab fees. $2,000 a month for entertainment, for fun, for the college experience. And so this was, this was quite, this was quite a, a discovery. So I, in our investigation, I discovered that this young co-head had made a mistake we kind of pieced it all together, and we made a mistake. That she'd accidentally double-entered one of the two thousand-dollar deposits that she regularly got. So she she put she counted put in two thousand-dollar deposit twice in her register. So she thought she had two grand more than she did, and she surmised, uh, um, and so she just kind of assumed that she had this much there. So in the process of this, I figured one thing out: she wasn't studying accounting. so then she proceeded to go on this the shopping trip and this dining trip and movie spree and brought her friends and dorm uh dorm room uh friends with her and so there was a sense of relief when we discovered these were not fraudulent uh but that relief was replaced with some anger and indignation from her mother uh some towards her daughter but also some towards me and she immediately asked me if some of these charges could be dropped and, uh, you know, after all, her daughter had just made, you know, an innocent uh, little mistake. And I regretted, regretted to inform her that, that I just simply uh, could not do that. These these, frauds were not, these charges were not fraudulent. There was no uh, error on the bank's part. This was a, a customer uh, mistake. And she pleaded, and I told her I simply did not have the authority to do it. And if I had the authority, I wouldn't have wanted to do this anyway. <laughs> and so she asked to speak with the manager. So I told her to wait. We summoned the manager. The woman and the manager met in his office. After about 10 minutes, they emerged. And they're laughing and they're smiling. And they said their farewells. The woman walked out of the bank. The manager came over to me and he told me to go ahead and wipe out all of the overdraft charges. Um, and I know I could not conceal my facial expression because he responded right away. Um. He could, he could see this little look of like shock and disillusion on my face. And he said, but, but, and he kind of gave a little tiny wink and he goes, this family has a lot of accounts with us and a business loan. And he turns and walks away and then he turns back over his shoulder and he says, and a mortgage. Here's the simple fact. The simple fact was that this young woman was irresponsible. And because of the actions of her parents and the bank manager, she would not face the financial consequences for her error because her family had money. She was afforded the benefit of the doubt at the bank as policy. She was afforded a a benefit of the doubt that 90% of my customers would never get. She was able to wipe out all of those financial fees that would just not be granted to those who didn't. It took me some time to scrub all those overdraft charges, and when I was done, uh, I returned to helping other customers, and I kid you not, not not long after that, I served another customer like the one I described earlier. Struggling financially, hovering just above the dreaded negative balance, Before she sadly fell below it, she'd incurred $50 in charges, she wasn't scheduled to be paid until Friday, and she was desperate. She didn't have other accounts, she didn't have a business loan, she didn't have a mortgage. She wasn't a privileged customer, and there was nothing I could do. Partiality, it's everywhere, right? It's everywhere in in the world. And that was an incident that stood out to my mind of the, the sin of partiality. It's everywhere in the world. It should not be in the church. James said, it's a sin. And you're a lawbreaker. How many times in the New Testament does a New Testament writer write to a group of people and say, and you're a lawbreaker when you do that. Partiality is a sin. And James says, and if you break, if you break that one, you, it's like you've broken the whole thing. You've taken the entire moral law of God and you said, broken the whole thing. So James offers some solutions and corrections here. And I, we're going to have six. I'll share six things that he gives us here for, uh, that we need to keep in mind and remember to help us avoid this sin of partiality. Okay? Uh, here they are, if my voice will hold out. First one, we must look beyond worldly evaluations and look to God's view of who we are. And for this, I'm going to jump back a couple of, uh, we'll jump back a a chapter to chapter one. We didn't get to this because I wanted to share it with this chapter or this passage, but we skipped over these verses. If you may remember, Um, we didn't cover verses um, nine through 11 in chapter one. Notice what James says here. Verses nine through 11, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Notice especially verse 9 in the beginning of verse 10, the contrast that's laid out there. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Okay, so lowly, and he needs to boast in his exaltation. The rich boasts in his humiliation or being brought down. Now, there's a contrast between these two persons. And the the interpretation of what James means here is, does kind of hinge on two things. So let me give you the two interpretive options that are given here. The question is, the second person, is the second person a Christian or an unbeliever? Because notice, the first person is clearly a believer. He says the lowly brother, right? And brother being a biblical term for fellow Christian. But he doesn't include it for the rich in the verse 10. It's kind of left off. And so the, that's the debate. Is this person a Christian or is he an unbeliever? And so we know the first one's a Christian. So here's the two options. And, and option number one is that, okay, he's not a Christian. So what does this mean? It's, so if the one who is rich is an unbeliever, then James is using really biting irony right here to depict this person's condemnation. And so you could kind of paraphrase it like this. Go ahead and boast, James is saying to the rich. All you really have to boast about is the humiliation that is coming to you in the final judgment when Christ returns. I don't think that that's the case. I think that the rich person here in James's mind is a Christian. I don't think, as some like to do, rule out the idea that there are, you cannot be a rich Christian. James is not advocating that, nor does anywhere else in the New Testament. I think that the second person is a, is a Christian who happens to be rich. So then what's, what is he saying here then? What does that mean to boast in his humiliation? Well, it could be taken like this. If the one who is rich is a Christian, then James's encouragement to that person is to take pride in his low position. In other words, um, he is to boast not in his wealth or in his social status or his elevated position. A Christian is not to do that. He is instead to boast about his identification with Christ. So the brother in low position should boast that he's been exalted into the status of being a child of God in the kingdom. And the rich Christian is to boast in his status of being identified with Christ in his humiliation. You see what he's doing? I think that's what James is doing here. And so as Christians, then we must not use material standards to measure our identity. I think that's the basic point of what He's saying there, James wants them to look beyond their worldly situation and to take pride in where they are with Christ. Or as uh, I think he's echoing, at least the idea that Jeremiah says in chapter nine, verses 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boast is that we know we know the Lord. Or is Paul echoing this? says that we boast that we are in Christ. So we look beyond our worldly situations. We look beyond worldly evaluations and look to God's view of who we are. So Christians, however difficult the circumstances might be for you in this world, you can always take pride in your high position or your exaltation. Which are terms that, that he's using? Actually, it's from from where the Spirit descends, and that where Christ ascended to. So when he, he's using this word uh, bo- boast in your exaltation, he's he's describing the this the same term that he used from where the Holy Spirit came from heaven to descend down to earth, and where Christ ascended to go up to. So boast where your where your citizenship is is what he's saying. So that's James' first point. We must look beyond worldly evaluations and look to God's view of who we are. Amen. Second, remember the transitory nature of the world, including its riches. This is seen in the second half of verses uh, 9 through 11, right? Because, he says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay? Even if he is wealthy, the Christian must have the mindset that all that he has is nothing. Really in the scope of eternity. Right? You've probably seen this picture before. I love it. Right? Right? The, a hearse carrying, towing a U-Haul. What, and what in the world is happening here? As if I love the picture because it's as if the, the person who has now died gets to take it with him. No. Right. Some people would have a much bigger U-Haul if they could, right, to take it with them to heaven. No. Don't lay your treasures up with moth and rust. You know, where moths moths can eat it and rust can destroy it. The treasure should be in heaven, James' brother Jesus said. So remember the transitory nature of it. It's it's going to be hey, it's here for a season, and then when the summer comes, it's going to scorch it, dry up, fall away. He goes, that's everyone's wealth. Everyone's. Everyone's. Uh, one one writer describes describes all of life and the material wealth that's gained in this life he describes it like a board game it's just a game and at the end of the game it all goes back in the box it's all gone so remember the transitory nature of this world including its riches number three remember who a gracious god chooses and how Remember who a gracious God chooses and how favoritism toward the rich is wrong because it contradicts God's own attitude as revealed in his gracious election to salvation. Notice what it says in verse five. Listen, and, and several times James does this with my, you know, he talks about my brothers. Hey, my brothers. No, he says, my beloved brothers. Listen, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. What an amazing verse. If there could be one verse that you would want to memorize from chapter two, this would be a good, this would be a good candidate. Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? God's choice of, of the poor to inherit His kingdom is evidence of his regard for them and shows um, how wrong Christians are to discriminate based on those categories. Because God doesn't use those categories in a much greater standard of his salvation. Now, James is not saying here that God chooses poor people just because they're poor. That's a misunderstanding of what he's saying here. But he is making the point that their worldly status is not a factor in salvation rather it's purely by the grace of god and so we must remember how god acts as a gracious god paul wrote this i don't know if i have this one Uh, yes this is paul says something very similar to the corinthians who had a very big problem of kind of boasting and kind of putting themselves on a different plane with other believers over here. And you, oh, you follow this guy? Well, I follow this guy, you know. And they would do all of these things. And they would just putting themselves in one place over another. So much so, even later, he gets to the Lord's Supper. He goes, hey, and some of you actually kind of push your way to the front in the Lord's Supper. And you actually eat all the bread and drink all the wine, then you get drunk, and those other people who came to have the Lord's supper, they didn't get anything. Like Paul was having to really kind of tamp down all of their, their egos. But he begins where he's saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He goes, For consider your calling, your calling to salvation, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Think about that. We would, we kind of you know, got these statuses and people on these levels and we're like, wow, these kind of things. And he's saying here, he goes, stop and think about how God operates in salvation. He doesn't, he actually chooses the lower ones as kind of a way to point out, like, I don't operate this way. I'm shaming the wise who think that we operate in this way. Can I get an amen? This is awesome. This is how God saves. He does it by a completely opposite way that we would think that he he would do in a worldly way. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. How did Jesus show up? On a charger horse? He shows up on a donkey. Every little layer. Every little layer. God's going to, I'm upending all of the The pride and the arrogance of all humanity and how they operate. Chose what is weak in the world to shame the the, the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Amen. Wow. Wow. Man, and I tell you what, this is not in my notes, but I, I see these clips. Of these prosperity preachers. My goodness. Who will sit there and say. Look look at my life. Look at the blessing I have on here. Nothing in what I've read. Fits that. God operates in a completely different way. Completely different way. So remember who a gracious God chooses. And how. Number four. Remember the dignity of other image bearers. Verse six a, meaning first verse of uh, first sentence of verse six. But you have dishonored the poor man. There's a lot loaded here in that passage, connected to everything he else said about violating the law and violating Leviticus. But a couple of other verses come to mind too in Proverbs. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Think about that. But he was generous to the needy; He honors him. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Who's his maker? You mock the poor, you're mocking God. James says, you go and do this in the church. You say, oh, you, oh, you're nice. Come over here. You sit here. Oh, you go. Okay, go there. Just sit in the corner. James says, that's it. You've, you've dishonored him. And that dishonors God. So remember the dignity of image bearers. If the poor, to insult the poor is to insult his maker. Then you can't operate this way. Number five. Remember the golden rule. This is verse six is the rest of six verse verse nine. And are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court are not, uh, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Excuse me to verse seven. Okay. So remember the setting, right? This is the diaspora. They're scattered, they had to leave their homes, they're, they're refugees, they're displaced. They're probably being taken of, taken advantage of by the locals or the landowners to which they're trying to go. They're trying to find a piece of land, and this is kind of how things operated in the, the ancient world, in the first century world. And so they themselves were victims of economic exploitation. All of them were, right? All of them. So then the thinking is, James is just saying, why would... You honor the rich in the assembly when it is the rich unbelievers of the world who blaspheme the name of Christ. They, they were in that church setting. They were treating uh, other poor people in the, the assembly poorly, forgetting that they themselves, many if not all of them, had been victimized by the rich unbelievers. And I believe it's the unbelievers in this in this verse. So, in other words, they were doing to others what they did not want done to them, to themselves, by rich unbelievers. So, James said, why why are you acting that way? Why are you acting in a way that you didn't like to be treated? Sound familiar? Right? Jesus, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, which James quotes many times or alludes to many times. So, whatever you wish So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule, right? Whatever you would wish other people to do, that's how you are to be. So that's number five. Remember the golden rule, number six, last one. Remember that we will be judged by our mercy. That we will be judged by our mercy. Now, I know we've we kind of had this debate about like, well, what, how do we follow the law? How do we do the law? We don't do it to gain acceptance. Instead, we, we are received and accepted by the, the work of Christ. And yet we still have an obligation to follow the law. And there's plenty of commands that we should follow the law. But this one has always been a really tricky, a, a tricky and difficult one for, for many reasons. Notice in verses twelve of uh, 12 and 13, by the way. So let me, to give you what I mean by this, remember that we will be judged by our mercy. Uh, Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Let me say that one again. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here I think James is echoing Something that Jesus himself had said at the, in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, so this is what I was saying. Like, so the relationship here. So we could talk about, well, the whole thing about salvation and are we saved by doing works? Are we saved by being merciful? Um, no, I don't think that's what, what he's saying anywhere in the New Testament. But rather it's saying if you are saved and you are not merciful, then you've got a real problem on whether... This is really what it is. This, so here's what Jesus, and I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 18 um, as an example of this. This showing m- Mercy. Or showing forgiveness. If you've received mercy, then you need to show mercy. That's just kind of a given. If you've received forgiveness, then you need to show forgiveness. This is, this is a, a given in the New Testament. And if you don't show mercy in when you've received it, then you've got a problem. If you don't show forgiveness when you've received it, then you've got a problem. So Jesus tells this parable to Peter. When Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often... Um, Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many, uh, as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. It could go either way. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. My note here says that's twenty. That one talent was worth 20 years wages for a laborer. So this would be, what is that? Uh, 20 years times 10,000. Somebody else do the math. You get okay, do the math later. So 10,000 talents. So meaning there's no, he doesn't have enough lifetimes to do this. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, that's that was a, a, a day's wage. So a hundred days to 100,000 years, right? He's just been forgiven 100,000 years of wages and he goes down and shakes down this guy for 100 days and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So a servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus said, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Peter says, seven times? I mean, the law says three. And if I double it and add one, seven, that's pretty good, right? Jesus goes, 77. 70 times 7. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, this is what the Lord will do to you. Remember, this is is the truth of what Scripture says. We're totally saved by the work of Christ and the merits of another. And if we've received that level of mercy, the expectation is that we will show that level of mercy. And there's many warnings in the scripture for us that we will be judged based on our mercy. And I think it's because the, the level of mercy that we show is evidence of the mercy that we perceived that we have received. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. So, friends, we must look beyond. Look beyond your worldly evaluations and look to God's view of who we are. Remember the transitory nature of this world, including its riches. Remember who a gracious God chooses and how. Remember the dignity of other image bearers. Remember the golden rule. And remember that we will be judged by our mercy. Amen. Let's stand with for closing prayer. God, we praise you for your word. May what we have heard exhorted to us through James today be upon our hearts and upon our minds. Lord God, would you, by your gospel, purge from us the sin of partiality? We ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So, brothers and sisters, the reminder, the offering box is in the back. Um, and as usual, I always love if you have a prayer request or some uh, something you'd like to, to pray about or discuss, uh, I would love to, to meet with you. Um, So let me give you a a parting benediction before we go. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.